try and create is that sense of belonging. And the way I then extend the quote is by saying, uh, if diversity is being asked to the party and inclusion is being asked to, uh, invited to dance, um, then belonging is choosing the music on the playlist and bringing food. Hello, and welcome to the Helping Organisations Thrive podcast. This is your host, Julian Roberts. This podcast is to provide leaders with insights, discussions, and robust strategies to help their companies thrive. We'll be interviewing business leaders, owners, experts, and thought leaders in the field of business resilience. Do enjoy the episode. Welcome to Helping Organisations Thrive. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of Chico Chak Revolti uh, on the show. Welcome to you, Chak, uh, Chico. Hi, very lovely to be here, Julian. Good to see you. Uh, you are the founder and managing consultant of Doing Diversity uh, Differently, where you help organizations enhance their culture, improve employee belonging, and do diversity differently. And today we will be exploring uh, diversity and inclusion and looking how we can create that sort of behavioral change against sort of root cause within an organization. And also touching on the different types of diversity, including cognitive uh, diversity. Uh, so before we, we get there, uh, Chico, I'd love to know, uh, what do you love about what you do? Um, that's a really good question. I, I think there's an awful lot that I love. Um, the reason I guess I started the organisation was having worked in a really broad spectrum of both functions and industries, um, I kept on seeing certain things happen within organisations where um, either the culture was fantastic or the culture wasn't great. And for me, I think that's something that is really critical to enabling diversity and, more importantly, inclusion and belonging to really thrive and succeed within an organisation. Um, so when I get to work with different organisations, uh, whether that be on training programmes, whether that be working with them to do a sort of survey that kind of then develops into a strategy or a report to help recommend uh, how people can increase that sense of inclusion and belonging within their organisation and knowing the impact that that has to individuals, especially those that are underrepresented um, within those organisations. I think that's probably the bit that I, I love the most. And you mentioned their belonging, because obviously there's there's diversity, there's inclusion, there's belonging, there's equity as well, isn't there? Absolutely. Uh, and so it'd be good to just expand a bit more upon that, because people tend to just hear D&I. And, Absolutely. And what that really means and what are these belonging, what's this equity and how does that play and what does that mean to you, but what does it mean to an organisation? So I think there was a really great quote by the chief diversity officer of Netflix, um, someone called Verna Myers. And uh, the quote is, diversity is being invited to the party and inclusion is being asked to dance. So you can kind of very clearly see the difference in terms of, well, I can be there, but I don't necessarily have that ability to participate. Um, but for me, when I look at that quote, I actually think, both of those statements are still very passive. I still have to wait to be invited. I still have to wait to be asked to dance um, at the party. So 
what I help organizations try and create is that sense of belonging. And the way I then extend the quote is by saying, uh, if diversity is being asked to the party and inclusion is being asked to, uh, invited to dance, um, then belonging is choosing the music on the playlist and bringing food to the buffet table. So I have no, uh, there, there is nothing there that's stopping me wanting to do this on my own. There are no barriers preventing me from doing it off my own steam. Um, and that's where we want to be able to get to. It's not just about having the representation within our workforce. It's not just about them being in the meetings. It's about where does that, um, I guess, autonomy of voice sit? Where does the ability for someone to feel engaged lie for them to want to then be more productive and generate better results for the organization as well as themselves i really like the idea that that belonging quotes and, and you added to it in terms of you you can sort of add to the music you can bring food and you feel i suppose valued in that context as well and i suppose we all feel, need to feel a sense of belonging Absolutely. Uh, but I like the it's it's a more of a an active thing rather than a passive thing. Yes. When we look at DNI, I could see in belonging, and I, I won't keep sort of <laughs> missing out the belonging piece here. Um, how do companies do it badly? And it sounds like we're starting on a negative. I think sometimes we can learn from where people do it really badly and not appropriately do it. They say they're doing, but they're not doing it. So, what's your experience? Either you've read what you've observed what you've gone into organizations where they've just not done it very well? I think there are, I think it's important to understand that this is not kind of something where one organization is doing it fantastically and other organizations are doing it terribly. There is going to be a journey. It's going to change. And there's a number of reasons why it changes. Part of that is the environment that we live in and geopolitical events that happen around us. Part of it will be the different people that come in and out of an organization where it means different things to them. Um, I would say those organizations that don't do particularly well are the ones that are aware of it and have chosen not to do anything about it at all. Um, though that is a very deliberate choice. Um, in terms of going, well, we know that there is a, a wealth of data out there that sits and supports the fact that, you know, diversity is beneficial to businesses, both on a commercial level, on a people level, um, whatever uh, dimension you look at that on, but we're just not going to do it. And in some why, ways... Why, why do you think that they're choosing not to engage with this, knowing the fact that there is huge amounts of data out there that says you have a more diverse included uh, population in your business, you're going to increase your bottom line. It's a, it's a fact. So why would they not choose to do that as a tactic, even if it's done in a way that's just purely driven by money? So I would say there's probably two things. Um, one is uh, when we look at different uh, concepts. So one of the concepts is um, what's classed as the status quo bias, i.e., I know that something needs to change, but until the platform is burning, I'm just going to go as is. So I, I will just stick with the status quo until something fundamentally goes wrong. Mm -hmm. um, that may well be that 
we have a grievance or a complaint, or it may well be something that happens at a much larger level. So a lot of organisations have resulted in addressing their diversity and inclusion challenges because of what's happening in the wider world. So if we think about the Me Too movement, if we think about what's happening um, in terms of race relations as a result of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter reignition uh, in 2020, what we're seeing currently with trans rights um, in, in workplaces, in society, etc., cetera, um, those are points where people go, ah, oh, this is the change that I need. But up until that point, I'm probably not going to do anything about it because I have other priorities. It may well be that we can't see that tangible uh, increase to our bottom line. You know, I'm investing this amount of capital um, expenditure into a diversity and inclusion uh, initiative. But uh, what I'm not necessarily seeing is a direct result coming out of it because it is something softer. So I would say that's one of the reasons. The second, I think, is that sometimes it might feel threatening. Sometimes it might feel uncomfortable um, to think that in order for one person to, to succeed or thrive or flourish, another person has to relinquish that that they already have. Um, so it's kind of almost seen as a zero-sum game, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's actually, again, I think a fallacy because if we're seeing all this data that says that, you know, if we have a diverse leadership uh, within our organisation, then that drives innovation revenue by 19% and overall EBIT by 9%, according to a study done by Boston Consulting Group. You know, there are lots of very similar studies out there. Um, what we're seeing is, there's more to invest back into the organization to create new opportunities. So it doesn't have to take something away from you. It's not um, what people say uh, is it's not just one pie or one cake that you are taking a slice of. You can think about how you cut that pie differently. You can think about, actually, can we now afford a bigger pie dish, which has more opportunity for different people? Um, So I would say that would be, uh, one of the key things in terms of barriers for for especially leaders within organizations to want to drive this through. Um, and I guess the third bit is the concept around privilege. Um, and privilege is one of those words that feels a little bit accusatory. It feels like, you know, if I say to you, Julian, you have privilege, um, you're sat there going, well, you don't know anything about me. You don't know how hard I've had to work in order to get here or whether I've had an easy life or not. But I don't think privilege is that. Privilege for me is when we don't face barriers or challenges purely based on who we are. Mm. And a really simple way that you can see this played out, there's a number of YouTube uh, videos that look at or videos on other platforms as well, I should probably say, um, that look at what's called a privilege race. So people are asked different questions and they step either forward or back um, depending on what their response is. And I think the really interesting thing about this is when people towards the front that have held privilege look back at who isn't necessarily with them at the same starting point, they were completely unaware of those advantages that they may well have had um, that mm. structurally exist um, that that means that they have 
had this thing that they've never even needed to consider um, when in the workplace or, you know, for example, a very simple one that uh, was often seen and is sometimes seen is language that we might use, for example, on a job description, um, which might have historically said he slash she will be able to, um, uh, they will be able to do a thing uh, on their, in their job description. Um, Now, what we actually see is the fact that um, as a result of this, uh, women will often be slightly disengaged because they see themselves second to men. So if we change some language, which is saying that they uh, will do X, Y, Z, that tends to have a very different result uh, as an outcome. And do you think the organisations who are potentially looking at this and for some reason not seeing the, the, the benefits or the long-term benefits from the financial, and not just financial here, but if that's one one driver, do you think also fear is stopping them? Fear of the unknown, the fear of change, the fear of, I'm not entirely sure how can I handle somebody who's from a different, not just race, but different sort of background to me as an identity. And do you think that's one of the sort of key drivers that, that people tend to sort of hold as, as in leadership? I think in leadership, definitely. And especially mm-hmm. when we see leadership teams being fairly homogenous, i.e. looking similar in terms of, not just gender or ethnicity, but what type of schools they might have gone to or what subjects they studied at universities mm. or the types of organisations they've gone to. You kind of think in a certain way. Um, that all kind of forms what you touched on earlier, which is your cognitive experience and your cognitive diversity. When those are similar, we tend to have more aligned thinking. Um, I think actually one of the bigger fears is intrinsically most people are good um, and they like to think of themselves as good so the fear is more about I'm going to get it wrong I'm going to upset someone I'm going to cause some level of offense which mm-hmm. I never intended to do so therefore my natural behavior will either be to be defensive around it or potentially to completely shut down withdraw and pretend that this isn't happening at all. So I think that's the biggest fear. And for me, one of the things that I like to say is actually it's much more important to understand what it is that we can do to step away from the mistake that we may well have made and just acknowledge the fact that we're going to make mistakes. Let's be clumsily human on this journey. Um, Let's think about how we can shift our impact to be something slightly more positive so if we do say something wrong if we do for example use the wrong gender pronouns for somebody and somebody points that out to us we we can obviously say you know that's not what I meant you've misunderstood me or you can say I'm really sorry I'm going to promise to do better next time I might still make a mistake Mm. um But actually, by making that mistake, that's how we learn. We don't learn through being comfortable. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, if we think about being children and we're six or seven, you know, we don't learn how we are doing things such as spelling, um, you know, developing our spelling skills by using the word cat or dog. Um, We 
actually push ourselves to use bigger words, don't we? Like, um, you know, disappoint. That's how we start learning because it's not things that we already know. So, so yes, that's where the challenges will be. So just, just building upon that in terms of, there's a lot of organizations I, I perceive as doing uh, sort of whole diversity inclusion in the context of just a tick box exercise. Absolutely. And they do it to produce stats, produce numbers and PR, everything else. And they're just being motivated by the sort of society. That that's what you ought to do uh, rather than what's the right thing to do. So how do, how do we get organizations in a place where it, goes from being a, a tick box to, to to genuinely doing something that they really want to do but also create true behavioral changes rather than just oh i have to do this i have to i have to employ so many people on my board i have to interview so many female or whatever it is the quota thing it comes a genuine desire and behavioral change what sort of two or three things have you you experienced and how you help companies do that it's a really really good question and i think um you know we move through these different stages of what diversity and inclusion looks like and how it presents itself so if we're doing just compliance-led initiatives, which are the tick box, i.e. on a job application, we have put a statement at the bottom saying, uh, we welcome applications from people of all genders and uh, ethnicities and sexual orientations and any other protected characteristic. Um, that's effectively something that's compliance-led. We're not necessarily doing what the behavior change is that enables those people to come in and then flourish if they're successful. Um, so I think a big part of it is taking accountability for our own learning on this. So what are some of the challenges that people may well face? Um, what does that look like? And there's plenty of uh, data and studies that have been done by either consulting firms or universities or government bodies in whichever country or uh, jurisdiction that you may well be in um, that talks about some of the challenges uh, that people may well face. Then think about what can we do to bridge some of those knowledge gaps? Um, do we need to have some training? Do we need to kind of uh, have someone talk about these things? Do we have people within our own organization that can share their lived experience in terms of what it is that can happen and can be done? And then finally, um, I think it's by understanding that it's going to be a continual journey and making sure that when things feel relatively easy mm. in terms of what we're doing, question them. Why is it that easy? Um, are we asking enough people? I always had uh, one of my previous mentors um, when I worked in uh, the, the health insurance industry uh, said that if you've got more than two people around the table that agree with you, you've got too many people around the table. Because what we should be able to do is find ways to respectfully challenge and contribute different thoughts and ideas to what the problems that we're solving are. Because without those, mm. we have no idea of what some of those challenges are. Yeah, I've just been thinking, actually, <clears throat> it seems to me is we know that having a diversity of people, however that's made up, we don't have to name what that is in terms of whether it's gender, race or, or cognitive, means you're going to have 
greater insight into problems, greater understanding. And because I, I think for years, I always felt this almost positive discriminate, as in almost, oh, I have to employ the various types of races and anything else because that's what we do, which is the wrong way about thinking about it. It's just so, but actually, if I go have a mindset and says, look, I, I've got a, an organization. I know diversity is benefit. I want to employ a diverse number of people or have diverse teams and have that as your intent, as your overarching goal. However, that gets made up of, whether it's more whites, blacks, whatever, it doesn't matter in a sense, I don't think. That's where I get caught up when it gets into numbers and stuff. Actually, we've got a diverse team here solving problems. What are your thoughts on that and how we encompass that sort of mindset, really, I guess? I think it's the right way to approach things. What we want to be able to do is think about what is it that's preventing us seeing those people as uh, the best people um, that that may well stop that that kind of groupthink mentality from happening. Um, it may well be, you know, we acknowledge, for example, we don't have as many female leaders um, in organisations as we would like to. Um, so what is it that we're doing that's preventing female leaders from being able to be seen mm-hmm. and visible um, and therefore shift how we are doing the assessment to actually kind of place different importance on things? Mm-hmm. Um, there's often this whole concept of we just want the best person for the job, which is you know the concept of meritocracy. I actually think that meritocracy is a bit of a myth Um, Because when you look at the different types of privilege that we all have um, and the different ways that bias can present itself. um, So, for example, affinity bias is where we choose to take information or um, we connect with people or hire people that look like us, that think like us, that have had similar experiences to us. We look to conform uh, to how other people in our groups think. So Mm -hmm. if we are uh, in an environment where people are presenting a particular solution, um, if we don't have that safety or security um, in our culture uh, to raise different thoughts as suggestions, we're not going to contribute them. We look to confirm what it is that we already know because then that derives value within ourselves to be able to make ourselves think of um, in, internally that we are good at what we do and and the things we are. So we can think about how do we reframe some of those assessments. We can think about how we reframe how we engage with our people to make sure that actually that diverse team is coming through. We can think about some of the questions that we're asking um, where, you know, if we're driving a project and everything does seem easy, we can sit there and go, let's take a stop. Why is this so easy? What are we missing? Who are we not asking um, about whether this could be even more effective, a product or a solution or a service that we're designing? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's when organizations don't do that. And there have been so many um, through history. So, for example, one of my favorite examples is, uh, you know, back in the early 2000s, um, 48% of the world had a mobile handset uh, that had a green screen that you could play snake on. Uh, and when you walked down the high street, you would nearly always hear a very specific ringtone. And that was Nokia. Um, mm. And when you ask them sort of in the 
early uh, or the mid 2000s what they thought their customers needed, um, they would have said a phone with more buttons on it to compete with the likes of BlackBerry, where people were starting to be able to access emails and they could write uh, a message more quickly compared to you know having to press the seven key uh, four times in order to get the letter S uh, to come up on the screen. What they hadn't thought or seen was the fact that someone was going to come out with a phone with absolutely no buttons. <laughs> yes. And that completely took them by surprise. And they found themselves in a very uh, negatively impacted position where they now only hold something like a 2% global market share of handsets. So it's thinking about what is it that we're not seeing as opposed to what mm. is it directly that we are seeing? Um, so that's how I would kind of say, who can we be bringing in? Who are we not hearing? Um, mm. Do they already work for this company? Do we need to get insight from elsewhere to be able to see these things? And I think that's something that would be really useful. You're talking about cognitive diversity, though, in terms of that Absolutely. different way of thinking, different backgrounds. And I think it's not really talked enough of. And I think we need to, I guess, embrace a bit more of that. And we've obviously done a lot of the gender, race, and that's all val uh, valuable and important. But I think this different type of thinking to try and a spark challenges, which means also you've got to create an environment that is where people feel psychologically safe to Absolutely. challenge, to contribute and everything else. So, you know, how do we, how do we sort of recruit for that sort of cognitive diversity? I mean, you, you don't put it on, a, on an application, please ensure that you've got a diversity in your cognitive thinking, please. Um, how, how do we go about sort of making sure we, we are a, challenging that internally but also then starting to bring that into the organization i mean i don't think you can put that into a job advert because the candidate will have no idea of the team that they're going into so they would have no idea whether they were cognitively diverse to to the other people around them and i think a really simple way of looking at it is by we often do skills mapping um in terms of internal exercises to see who has what skills within a particular team or organization. And when we bring someone new, we kind of look at what the, the function within an within that role is, um, what that team does and what that organization does. So therefore, what we deem to be a valuable criteria mm. is something that's uh, replicating and effectively just reinforcing the skills that we already have within the organization. Mm. So when we're recruiting in, a big thing to, to be able to do is to go, what is it that we don't have? Where can we get that from? How can we get that from other industries? Um, I guess a personal experience of mine was uh, I had my first career pivot uh, going from um, the performing arts. I used to manage orchestras and uh, worked in radio uh, for the first part of my career after having done a music degree and then found myself working in international health insurance, um, taking our products to be um, regulated in new territories. And I think for me, the really interesting thing was because I wasn't insurance through and through, because I wasn't health, the questions that I could ask were very different. You know, why is it that we're doing it like that? What would happen if... Are there other ways that we can mm. do this? And that actually meant that our route to market was reduced from 
anywhere between two to three years down to just five months with one of the first projects I led. Um, it meant that I sort of said, well, why do we need to wait for our products to be fully uh, approved by the regulator before we even start having conversations with customers? Why don't we create a warm pipeline? We can actually also use that insight to design what the product needs are for that country. And that meant that on the day that we went live, we exceeded our business case expectations by 240%. So not only had we done it much quicker, but mm. actually on day one, we'd already generated more revenue than we had forecast to generate in uh, the first year. So thinking about that, but enabling people to think like that, um, mm. We often bring people into an organization and say, I love all the things that you have done outside. Now, please fit into this tiny way of how we do things here. <laughs> and very quickly, people become institutionalized. And part of that is, I guess, that feeling of uh, wanting to belong and wanting to, to fit in. Mm. But actually trying to get us to understand, instead of that, how we can add to the culture that we're in is a mm. much stronger proposition for our teams and for our development, if we're doing it safely, if we're enabling everyone to be able to do that at the same level. Yeah, I heard it. You just said it then. I heard a, a great quote, you know, think of culture ad rather than cultural fit. And Absolutely. It's, it's rather than trying to fit in, actually want to add to this equation and add to what we're doing and to be perhaps a little bit disruptive. And it's interesting, yeah, that's just a simple thing that bringing somebody in from a different industry who's got no experience can actually create some real insights because they just have different perspectives on things and, you know, really helps as you, as you've just done by you asking perhaps the, the silly, stupid questions that nobody would dare ask or even think of made people think differently and created all that sort of benefits. Absolutely. And thinking about how you can cultivate that culture of curiosity, mm -hmm. um, there were a lot of C's in that. Cultivating a culture of curiosity. I might, I might use that again. Um, but making sure that we are being naturally inquisitive about what it is that we're doing, how we can do this. Because going from managing orchestras into um, regulating insurance products in other territories, I had no knowledge. But I had a desire and a want to make that feel positive to make that feel constructive to do that in a, mm. in a great way so that was something that i think is is something that we we should be valuing within our organizations um great insights uh, chico uh, thank you for your sharing thank you for your examples and uh, and, and certainly in touching on the more the cognitive side i think it's really helpful um if people are interested in, in in you and what you're doing how can they sort of connect get in touch with you um, so I guess the easiest way is either on LinkedIn. Uh, so my name is on the screen, Chico Chakravorty, um, or alternatively go to our website, Doing Diversity Differently, or do feel free to drop me an email at chico at doingdiversitydifferently.com. Brilliant. Really, thank you for your time today. Much appreciated. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. If you do like this episode, then please do rate, review, and share with your friends and colleagues. As a coaching practice, we coach high-performing leaders and teams with extreme ambitions. We'll help you to go beyond what you believe is possible. If this sounds like you, then let's have a conversation with me. Contact me at julianrobertsconsulting.com. <laughs>